hearty welcome to you and to the to Westminster's first town hall noon forum. Today marks the first in, in six such forums that are going to be held uh, the balance of this year and uh, early in 1981. All the forums are gathered around this single theme, Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. This downtown Minneapolis congregation is, is hosting this series because we believe that the issues facing our society are staggering, that these issues need to be addressed with uh, keen intelligence and moral tenacity, and that we can render the community a service by, by providing a context in which people can, can be heard, people from near and far who have won a reputation for being able to bring to bear high intelligence and moral toughness on the issues of the day and in the areas of their competence. I might also add that in sponsoring the forums, we as a church are also celebrating the, the significant strides in the development of this section of the city, uh, including the progress on and completion of new hotels, condominiums, apartment houses, and not least of all, the extension of the mall from 10th Street past the church up to Grant, uh, as evidenced by all the construction work that you saw as you came here today. Before introducing today's guest, let me quickly outline several procedural matters. At approximately 12.30, Mr. Cox will complete his formal remarks. Uh, then we'll take a minute or two break uh, to allow those of you who must leave to do so, and also to give a moment for you, if you have a question, to place it on this bright yellow card there are such in the pew card racks. Pass them when the time comes to the aisles, and the ushers will pick them up and bring them forward to the two people here who will uh, look them over and pass them up to me, and I'll present them to, to Mr. Cox. Before leaving today, would you also please spend a moment with this blue form? Uh, and when you filled it out, just leave it at your place. I might say that coffee and tea are available in the downstairs dining room now or after the program. Uh, now, if those who, uh, there are those of you who must eat lunch and, and uh, watch on the monitor, the TV monitor at the same time. So much for details. Uh, the name Archibald Cox, I, I think you will agree, is its own introduction. You know that he is a professor at Harvard Law School. You know that he was Solicitor General of the United States. You know that he was the first special Watergate prosecutor. You know that he now heads Common Cause, which is a Washington-based public interest lobby associated over the past 10 years with reform in American politics and dedicated, as I understand it, in the 80s to making government work better in the common interest. You may not know that his appearing here today has been made possible in large by funds made available by the Hennepin County Bar Association, and uh, we thank the representatives of that association who are here today. Something said about Mr. Cox at the time of his accepting the Watergate job, I think, serves to introduce him to us now very, very appropriately. It was said, time and again, he has been called to serve the public interest, and each time he has proven himself a man of brilliance, judgment, and sensitivity. And so we take pleasure in welcoming him here today. Mr. Cox.
Dr. Meisel, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I appreciate Dr. Meisel's two generous words, and uh, you're welcome. Uh, I am going to address myself today to what seems to me to be a central, if not the central question uh, of public affairs uh, in our time. Uh, how can we regain the feeling of confidence, uh, the sense of common enterprise, uh, and the spirit of toleration and cooperation uh, that for so long characterized the American people? Uh, because the current public mood does seem to be one of doubt. Uh, there are few signs of enthusiasm for either of the leading presidential candidates with the conduct of the campaign, with its coverage by the media. Uh, and behind those uh, symptoms, I think, does lie uh, diminished confidence, uh, fear that government is uh, unable to cope with the complexity of modern society, uh, alienation, uh, and a sort of turning inward. Uh, many of you will remember that Alfred North Whitehead, when he was asked to explain the extraordinary achievements of the American people, uh, replied that there was no other people in the history of mankind uh, who had shown such innate qualities uh, of toleration uh, and cooperation. Uh, the hardships of the frontier had taught our uh, forebears uh, that despite the value they placed on individual liberty, uh, they were all fellow voyagers in the same boat, uh, that no man could or woman could move very far ahead toward personal goals uh, unless the vessel moved, uh, and that the vessel couldn't move if some pulled ahead, uh, some backed water, uh, some laid on the oars, uh, others demanded a new boat, uh, and more and more dropped out to go fishing. Uh, toleration and cooperation uh, flow, I think, from belief in the value of an enterprise, uh, from confidence in its goals, uh, and from confidence in the manner in which it is conducted. Uh, but they depend, too, on uh, the opportunity to participate uh, and the realization that participation counts. Of course, today, the 70-fold increase in our number, uh, from 3 million in 1776 to now over 200 million, uh, the size and complexity of the aggregations and organizations uh, required to harness the discovery of discoveries of science uh, and make modern technology work, uh, and the growth of uh, large-scale government uh, all diminish the individual sense of sharing in a common enterprise uh, over which he has a measure of control uh, and to which he or she uh, owes an obligation. And I think our first need is to uh, attend to those uh, institutions, uh, organizations, uh, associations uh, that could help to preserve and now to rebuild uh, 
uh, the individual sense of meaningful participation uh, in the common enterprise. Uh, I'm not thinking solely of government, so I shall come back mostly to government in a moment. Uh, I've often thought that even with the qualities that Whitehead spoke about, uh, the American people couldn't have gotten very far if their vaunted mechanical ingenuity uh, had not been matched by a rare genius uh, for creating all sorts of voluntary organizations, uh, institutions, and procedures uh, for solving uh, common problems, especially common problems shared by people who also have uh, some difference uh, of immediate interest, uh, common problems for accommodating differences. Uh, there are lots of examples that you'll think of. Uh, much of my life was spent in uh, labor management relations, uh, and during that period, uh, labor lawyers and collective bargaining uh, were extraordinarily successful in creating this kind of uh, do-it-yourself mechanism, uh, voluntary mechanisms for allowing individuals and groups uh, to pursue uh, very diverse goals, uh, yet which would provide the unity, uh, the forum for resolving differences uh, that would enable them to move ahead uh, toward their diverse goals, but also in the larger common enterprise. Uh, those who have wrestled with the crowded court calendars, uh, the ever-growing wa wave of litigation, uh, are surely aware that uh, we need to find some other solution than courts uh, for resolving uh, these problems uh, in ways that involve uh, individual private responsibility uh, and preserve private involvement. Uh, the uh, diversion programs that, uh, for diverting youthful criminal offenders away from the criminal prosecution process are one example. Uh, the neighborhood organizations that have grown up in a few cities uh, for settling neighborhood disputes outside the framework of courts or another. Uh, Kansas City offers a uh, currently exciting example in the uh, field of energy. Uh, under the leadership of Dr. Douglas Rushing, I, oh, am I making that bang? I didn't know who. <laughs> I was sort of inwardly cursing out uh, appropriate curses in a church. Uh, uh, whoever was doing it. <laughs> uh, excuse me. He has led uh, the Metropolitan Energy Assembly Project, as they call it, drawing participants from all parts of the community, individual citizens, uh, to conduct a study of Kansas City's energy needs uh, and a program for energy saving, uh, which will meet the needs of the community for 15 or 20 years. And while government is involved, this is all outside the frame of government. Uh, and for that reason, I think we'll involve more people, uh, more sense of responsibility, uh, and the like. Uh, but of course, even though the effectiveness of government is limited, uh, today it is at the center. 
the progress and self-confidence of a society in which government is at the center uh, requires belief uh, not only in common goals, but I think especially in the manner in which confidence in the manner in which government is conducted. In the 1970s, the paramount need was to restore honor, integrity, accountability to government. Then people didn't trust the government because the government didn't trust the people. And the mid-1970s were notable for the hard and success, largely successful fight, both in Washington and in the state capitals, to reform our governmental procedures in ways that would make them more open, more honorable, more accountable. For sunset and sunshine laws, for lobby disclosure, to break the lock of seniority in choosing the chairman of congressional committees, to set up and enforce ethical standards in both the legislative and executive branches to reform the methods of financing political campaigns uh, and similar measures. Uh, now, in the circles where attachment to the status quo is exceeded by, only by nostalgia for the good old days, uh, there's a recurring effort to make reform into a bad word. Uh, reforms, it is said, often have unintended consequences uh, so that well-meaning tinkerers with government with little understanding of the realities uh, do, no mo do more harm uh, than good. Uh, well, since it's seldom given to uh, men or to women either, for that... The paper is hitting this, uh, this doc. Just keep it down. Oh. <laughs> I was just about to say in a loud voice, look, it isn't me this time. <laughs> uh, reforms do have unintended consequences at times, uh, and uh, the reformers should be the first to acknowledge uh, that the reforms they've pressed to enactment uh, often need uh, further study uh, and further reforming. Uh, but that really isn't the thrust of the criticism. Uh, the critics would have it supposed uh, that laws regulating campaign finances and bringing openness, accountability, and responsiveness to government uh, are all mistakes uh, and that we ought to go back to the good old days. Uh, those attacks uh, invariably rest on one or more of three fallacies, I think. Uh, one of them is to blame reform for undermining public confidence in Congress and other political institutions. Uh, and I think we should be concerned. Indeed, my whole theme is an expression of concern about the need to rebuild that confidence. Uh, but surely, also exposure of ineptness and wrongdoing uh, have an unfortunate impact, which uh, I think no one has felt more poignantly than I, 
because back in the mid-70s, and even somewhat today, I received hundreds of letters from uh, high school boys and girls, sometimes college, uh, saying, uh, after Watergate, how can I trust anyone in public life anymore? What's the sense of thinking of public life as something to be concerned with? Uh, but if one faces up to the question, uh, was it common cause and the House Ethics Committee that eroded confidence in the members of Congress? Uh, or was it the blatant self-dealing of Congressman Sykes? Uh, was it really the Senate Watergate Committee and the Watergate Special Prosecution Force that led the high school students to their conclusion? Or was it uh, Richard Nixon, John Mitchell, uh, and the senior members of the White House staff? Uh, surely not even the critics of measures looking to higher standards of honor and accountability uh, are prepared to seriously to argue or even openly to state uh, that the best way to build confidence in public officials is to help them cover up their wrongdoing. Uh, obviously, the only way to, uh, is to stamp out the abuses, uh, discourage recurrence, uh, and establish the higher standards. Uh, the second fallacy is to criticize reform, call it a mistake, uh, because it still permits some current evils. Uh, a good example is the criticism of the federal legislation reforming uh, the financing of political campaigns that was adopted in 1974. Uh, it's sometimes argued that that was a mistake and that common cause is to blame for the power of special interest money today uh, because that law does permit uh, corporations, uh, trade associations, and labor unions to set up uh, political action committees to contribute to the campaigns of congressmen and senators. Uh, and those contributions are becoming larger and larger and larger uh, and appear, almost any observer will say, to be largely responsible for the fragmentation in Congress uh, and to exert more and more influence on the beneficiaries. Well, dangerous and damaging as the rate and influence of PAC campaign contributions is, the present law is clearly preferable to the pre-Watergate conditions. No one genuinely interested in the political process um, and in its integrity uh, could advocate uh, going back to the days of when a $2 million pledge of a campaign contribution from the milk producers uh, was followed uh, a few days later by an increase in the support price of milk, uh, where an unlawful campaign contribution from uh, American Airlines was followed a few months later by an award of the profitable route to Hawaii, uh, or of something like the ITT affair, uh, or the contractor who testified that he gave $100,000 to uh, President Nixon's re-election campaign, not because he cared anything about the re-election of President Nixon, but it figured it should get him off the blacklist and make him eligible once again for government contracts. Uh, 
Special interest money will flow into political campaigns one way or another, so long as the law permits. Uh, the simple fact is that we live today in an age where government is the great regulator of economic activity, uh, the chief buyer of goods and services, uh, the dispenser of subsidies, uh, contracts, tax breaks, and the like. Uh, and those who benefit will, up to the limit that the law allows, and perhaps sometimes beyond it, uh, give money uh, to those candidates they think will be sensitive to their interests. Uh, so the 1974 reforms were no mistake. Uh, there was no backlash. Uh, they prevented the worst of the evils. Uh, the 30 million dollars, 30 million individuals uh, who checked the box on our income tax form each year uh, to and thus financed the 1976 and most of the 1980 presidential campaign, uh, certainly can have more confidence in government uh, than was the situation when in 1972, uh, 153 people financed President Nixon's re-election campaign to the tune of $22 million. Uh, the change, I'm sure, produces much greater confidence in the integrity of the political system. Uh, and to point to the PAC loophole, uh, doesn't show that reform was a mistake. It shows that reform hasn't gone far enough in order to uh, end the evil and revitalize the system of government. Uh, the third fallacy uh, is to, is the professor's old enemy, uh, post hoc propter hoc. Uh, all of us, as I said earlier, are deeply concerned by the disarray of Congress, uh, the unwillingness of members to follow the leadership, uh, the increase in congressional power vis-a-vis -vis the president and the reciprocal weakening of presidential leadership. And all of us, I think, as I said before, are much troubled by the low ratings of Congress, indeed of all of government, uh, in the public opinion polls. Uh, and the critics say, well, this followed the reforms. Uh, therefore, the reforms must be to blame, and particularly to blame for the senior people who are leaving Congress. Well, of course, the sequence in time uh, does not prove cause and effect. Uh, consider, for example, the uh, overturning of the seniority system for uh, uh, choosing committee chairman, uh, which is sometimes said to be a cause of the disarray. Well, I guess immunity from removal, to some extent, increased the power of the chairman over the members of the committee. Uh, but surely the system which gave the chairman of committees permanence was actually a decentralizing, fractionating influence because it enabled the committee chairman, sometime for years on end, uh, to frustrate the will not only of the leadership, uh, but of a majority of the members of Congress. 
Similarly, when we're told that the reforms have driven people from Congress and that people leaving Congress are the cause of the present disarray, one shouldn't put off, be put off by the fact that one followed the other. Indeed, nearly all observers agree that younger, brighter, and more hard-working men and women are replacing the retiring representatives, and that the general level of ability and, and standard of conduct in Congress uh, has, in fact, been raised. Uh, the true source of disarray, I think, uh, lies partly in the individualistic, uh, subjective character of our philosophy today, uh, but also in structure and in too little reform. Uh, for example, one source, as I indicated, of the disarray, the fragmentation, uh, is the special interest money. Uh, another source is the archaic structure of congressional committees, which are too numerous uh, and too overlapping. Uh, a third is the lack of machinery for evaluating ongoing programs. And a fourth is the lack of conscious attention uh, to the relationship between the executive and the Congress. And reform in those areas would surely improve not only the working of the machine, uh, the system, uh, but the uh, system itself. Uh, most important, I think, uh, is the need today to develop ways of focusing, refocusing, and centering uh, the attention of members of Congress and government officials in the executive branch uh, on the general good, uh, the common good, uh, and away from serving uh, the needs of particular interests. Uh, you're perhaps aware of the growing debate, and this is really my uh, last main theme. You're perhaps aware of the growing debate over the term uh, public interest, uh, in which one side argues that those who, like those of us at Common Cause, uh, speak of the public interest, they say we're really promoting special interests uh, of our own and are no different from other special interest groups. Uh, to me, the difference is uh, clear. Uh, by special interest, uh, we mean the oil interest, uh, the truckers' and teamsters' interest, uh, the maritime lobby, uh, the trial lawyers' lobby. Uh, one could go on down the list. Each is concerned with the welfare of a narrow segment of the community. And the term public interest surely refers to the compositive concern that John Gardner, following Abraham Lincoln, so happily termed the common cause, because nearly all, nearly everyone in the community, all of us, share it. One part of those concerns is, in a sense, material. Uh, the avoidance of unwarranted tax breaks and subsidies, the elimination of waste, 
the interest of consumers in such measures as the trucking deregulation bill, which is estimated to save three or four billion dollars a year, uh, the interest in the efficient utilization and conservation of our resources. The second part is less tangible. Uh, I'm thinking of all those things like uh, good schools, safe streets, uh, the environment, uh, that go to make up the quality of life. Uh, and third comes uh, the quality of government. Uh, government, as I said, uh, is at the center. Whether political institutions work well or badly, whether the people we choose for high office uh, lead and inspire us or disappoint us, whether problems are solved or ignored, uh, does depend, not on, does determine not only our material well-being, uh, but also uh, what will be the national spirit. Uh, and by improving the operation of government, uh, I think uh, we do or seek to and can uh, elevate uh, the national spirit. Uh, I recognize, of course, that in a uh, free society, uh, the men and women associated with what I call the special interest uh, are part of the public interest uh, because the uh, general welfare the commonwealth, if you will, uh, consists of the individual welfare or, we or wealth uh, of the members uh, and uh, the fair distribution uh, of benefits of one kind or another. Uh, and surely the uh, special interests are entitled to be heard. Uh, but I think it of the utmost importance uh, that their influence be measured by the reason and justice of their arguments, not by the money that they could contribute. And second, that they shouldn't be the only voices, uh, because they do have a fragmenting uh, influence. Uh, someone is needed to speak for the public interest. Uh, someone has to focus on the long-range progress uh, of the entire enterprise. Now, that's not to be done uh, just by exhortation. Uh, reforming government, reforming it so that attention is focused uh, on the common interest, uh, is ultimately a matter of the nitty-gritty uh, of structure, of machinery, of how it works. And I think uh, without repeating them, if you will think back uh, over what I have thus far said, uh, you will see that I've mentioned a number of structural changes, institutional changes, uh, which could help to focus attention uh, on the general interest uh, and which could make government work better so that there would be more confidence in its goals uh, and in the manner in which it is conducted. Uh, let me end simply by saying that I uh, am confident uh, that we can regain uh, our confidence, uh, our faith in the future, uh, our spirit of cooperation 
and toleration. It's to be done both in terms of creating the do-it-yourself associations and organizations that are so important, and in terms of finding additional ways for citizens to participate in government. <coughs> I've seen uh, too much progress in terms of uh, liberty, uh, equality, uh, opportunity, recognition of human dignity uh, in my lifetime uh, to suppose that we've lost the vitality to move the great American adventure uh, further steps ahead. <coughs> the, the millennium uh, won't come tomorrow, but we can do something, and I'm sure you agree with me that we ought to do what we can. Thank you all. should remove the Bible from the pulpit. I should have left it there because it would have kept your notes from hitting that mic. <laughs> we take a break now, uh, just for a minute or two, to allow those who must leave to do so, and uh, use this moment to uh, complete any of those yellow cards that uh, you wish to use for the purpose of asking a question. I was asked to... I guess the day before I came out here by a group of law students to compare the students over the years. Uh, well, I said several things. Uh, not all of them are applicable generally. Uh, I told them one thing which is true, that uh, we are fortunate at the Harvard Law School in uh, having brighter students than ever before each year. That has an unfortunate consequence for them, you know, because everybody in the class has been Phi Beta Kappa, everybody's been valedictorian, uh, things like that. When I went to law school, I was uh, always halfway down the class, and I didn't expect to be anything more than halfway down the class. <laughs> but uh, I wasn't, I have to boast. <laughs> But today, they're all used to being first, and then they do find I'm going to be number 364. And it's a terrible strain. I think that the, I think that the rather conventional comment that students have lost the idealism that characterized the late 60s is wrong. Um, I think that uh, there is still a much higher degree of idealism, altruism, uh, desire to serve the public interest than there was, say, during the 1950s, uh, or uh, probably than there was during the 1930s when I was a student. Uh, it's not as high as it was when John Kennedy was president and speaking. Uh, it's not as foolish as it was in the late 1960s, uh, that happily that uh, silly apocalyptic sense 
that characterized the students of the late 1960s, that there must either be instant millennium or instant destruction, has gone. People realize that progress is more incremental. I also find, and this is somewhat relevant to what I was saying earlier, I get a certain number of invitations to speak to groups of young people and to accept those I can because I enjoy them. I'm always struck by the response when someone does say, as I have said, that I believe in the future. I believe that uh, we can improve, and that you can improve. Uh, and uh, students are very, as the young always have been, responsive to that. Uh, they don't hear it enough, I think. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that response. I have several questions from, from the audience, beginning with, how can effective and high-caliber political leadership be recruited today? Uh, well, I think it, it begins in local effects. And it's a matter of those people who participate in local affairs uh, going out and recruiting others. Uh, it begins in the kind of do-it-yourself organization uh, I spoke of, uh, which are organizations serving the public interest. They're small enough to get a feeling of coherence, to see that you're accomplishing something. Uh, I think that the quality of leadership once again would improve if candidates for larger offices with larger constituencies uh, didn't have to face the uh, problem of money. Uh, I've held local office uh, in the town in which I live. I never ran for statewide office. I sort of vaguely toyed with the idea once or twice. And then I immediately said, where'd the money come from? Uh, and I don't know that I couldn't have raised it, but the prospect of being in debt to people for what it would take to run a statewide campaign always turned me off, and I suspect there are other people turned off by that. I think the whole idea of public financing, uh, if well-managed, uh, would uh, bring an improvement in this respect. Thank you. The next question, has ABSCAM put the last nail in the coffin of the public's trust in the government? <laughs> next question. <laughs> All right. Uh, let me. <laughs> I perhaps I'm blind or naive, but I have spent a certain number of years in Washington, and my sense is that our representatives and most of the people working in the executive branch, the great number. Are much like the rest of us. Most of the time trying to do the best they can. Uh, some of them awfully good and awfully de dedicated. Uh, some of them uh, kind of dull, thoughtless, some of them lazy. I think the number of uh, people who could be induced to offer money 
ask an Arab sheikh for money uh, is, is small. I really do. Um, and now, as I say, maybe I'm blind and trusting and naive, but that's my sense over the years. And those people, uh, and we're not uh, all naive at common cause, who've been working there through the 70s, would confirm what I said about the level being higher today. So uh, it should. This perhaps is a related question, therefore. On the basis of your Watergate experience, would you agree with Lord Acton that power corrupts? Yes. Yes. <laughs> no, no doubt about it. Uh, no doubt about uh, There's no doubt anywhere about that, 100%. Right. Oh, well, 99%. There are a few, few people who can resist it. Next question, how do you view the rapidly growing Christian lobby of groups such as Moral Majority? How effective are those efforts like to, likely to be in the near future? Is there a need for some rethinking regarding the lack of any real way to control such efforts in the interest of the whole any public? Any real way to? To control such efforts in the interest of the whole public. I, so long as they are efforts which rely primarily upon the activity of people, men and women, associating together, uh, I don't think that uh, it would be either desirable or constitutional to control or if they get over in the area where their influence is through the expenditure of enormous sums of money. And I don't imply it is. I'm just trying to draw an important distinction. Uh, then I would think uh, money isn't speech or political association and it is subject to control. Uh, I am not uh, sympathetic to the policy views of most of those groups, as you would surmise. Uh, I think this single-issue politics is uh, part of the fragmentation that we have countered. Uh, but uh, the character of the system is that we've got to have room for people uh, of a variety of opinions, uh, toleration. Moderation was the thing that uh, Whitehead was talking about, and they're very great here. Uh, and uh, while the intolerance of those groups for people of other convictions that are as honestly shared uh, is very troublesome, uh, I think one has to uh, look upon them uh, somewhat the way of the know-nothings of the 1840s and 50s and other movements of that kind. But the thing to do is for the rest of us to get in there and make ourselves felt. Next question. Do you feel the Supreme Court acts independently enough or reflects the political views of the administration? Uh, that's an easy one. The Supreme Court happily 
has for at least a century, I think, been totally free of ties to the administration, whatever the administration was. And uh, whether you agree or disagree with the decisions or agree or disagree with the justices, I am absolutely convinced uh, that they cut off all their previous political attachments and associations. I'm not saying they don't have philosophies that they come to the court with, but they're not based on any sense of uh, loyalty or obligation to the president who appointed them or based on any notion of being part of the, the party. This, just to add one word, uh, our, Germany has gone quite a long way in uh, establishing a constitutional court, and there, unhappily, the justices sort of vote the party line in ruling on constitutional questions. Remember that uh, Richard Nixon didn't fare very well uh, in the court, uh, four members of which he had appointed, or five, I guess, when it came to uh, the Watergate tape. And no president, it's remarkable the frequency with which judges have, uh, the justices, have voted against the interests of the man who appointed him in matters that really were of some personal importance to that man. All right. Next question. How can the growing multinational status of corporations be curbed from having these corporations uh, from ha uh, harming our national interest. Concern about national uh, international uh, corporations and their effect on our country. Well, I'm a little inclined to say, save that question till my colleague Roger Fisher gets here a few, <laughs> a few weeks from now. I'm, uh, I confess that uh, my own uh, political and economic philosophy uh, makes me uh, rather against uh, all the uh, increased size of conglomerate. Uh, I don't know that the international corporation is altogether a bad thing. Uh, it's true they have great power, but it's also true that uh, they're creating private networks of contact with people in other countries, which may help to lessen the confrontation between the United States and other nations. It surely does mean, uh, require the closest regulatory scrutiny to prevent the abuse of power. Uh, and, uh, one would wish, of course, that the uh, boards of directors of those corporations would act with some sense of the national and public interest. Next question, do we need reform of our long drawn out primary system in electing our national candidates for office? Yes. <laughs> uh, a couple of comments. First, I'm not sure that it is really the length of the primary system that is bad. 
the fact of the matter is that uh, in the last decade or so, almost two decades now, uh, those who get nominated for president are those who run for president for the preceding five or six years. Uh, that was true of uh, Jimmy Carter, was true of Richard Nixon in 68. Uh, I think everyone would agree that it is true of Ronald Reagan today. Uh, I don't know how you stop that. Uh, if somehow the press would turn a deaf ear to them, I think the rest of us wouldn't miss it. But, uh, <laughs> I, I do think, however, that the primary system is due for a great degree of scrutiny, and indeed this is, we're moving this up toward the top of our agenda at Common Talk. Uh, my own offhand feeling is that if I could wave a wand and have my druthers, uh, I would do two things. I would require that all the primaries be held on one of four months, probably beginning uh, sometime in April. I think something of an obstacle course over a period of time is a good thing. I wouldn't like to have one national primary day. And then if I again could wave a wand and have my druthers, I would arrange it so that the, the states that voted on each of the four days were representative, so that you didn't have Iowa or New Hampshire uh, telling the press who was the front runner and then the press telling us who was going to be nominated and who had momentum and so forth. Now there are an awful lot of political obstacles between uh, what I say would be my brothers and getting it. But it, I do think there is a, it may die down, but there is certainly a widespread feeling today uh, in political circles as well as uh, public-spirited citizens interested in politics that something needs to be done. I would not turn back to the uh, boss-selected candidate myself. Uh, I, I am for the open primaries, but I think we could use them a lot better. How do we engender in special interest groups a spirit of the larger common good? <laughs> well, that's, uh, I guess you just have to work at it. Uh, how, I mean, it's sort of like saying, uh, how do you settle the dispute between the Minneapolis newspapers and their reporters? Uh, if you're the mediator, uh, you try by a uh, combination of qualities uh, to make them see that, uh, as Ben Franklin uh, put it, uh, if we don't all hang together, we shall most assuredly all hang separately. If they put the newspaper out of business, it isn't going to help any of uh, And uh, you rely on a combination of your ingenuity and effort to 
without being too preachy about it, to, to convey a sense that there is a larger public interest. It's all right to, to be preachy here. That's, that's it's all right to be preachy here. I'm not, <laughs> I can't resist converting Dr. Basel. I mentioned that you must have known my brother when he was the Episcopal chaplain at Princeton when you were there. Uh, he heard me speak on an occasion. Uh, oh, it was when he was headmaster of the Garden School, and I addressed the school. And he came up to me afterwards and uh, said, you know, you may boast and take pleasure in being no longer active in the church, in being something of a skeptic, but I want to tell you, you're poaching in my jurisdiction. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> we have about four minutes left, perhaps time for a couple of more questions. Uh, let me thank uh, Mr. Nyman and Mr. Holton, who've done a nice job of sorting out representative questions. The next one that they gave me reads as follows. Should the position of special prosecutor be institutionalized at the federal level? Would that help minimize the influence of special interest groups, give the public an added voice? Well, the, not if the person who framed the question, and I understand special prosecutor the same way, because the role of the special prosecutor is to investigate the allegations, with apparently some ring of truth to them, of criminal conduct. And uh, the power of the special interest groups is, uh, is consistent, for the most part, with law. Uh, I, the institution of special prosecutor, or the position of special prosecutor, has to some extent been institutionalized. There is a triggering mechanism now for asking the judges in the appropriate uh, federal judicial circuit uh, to appoint a special prosecutor where there are allegations of misconduct against uh, officials in government in the executive branch. And you may recall reading that uh, recently uh, it came out that a special prosecutor had been named uh, to investigate charges of uh, using cocaine, uh, of course at first was Ham Jordan, and uh, now is again, uh, can't think of the name, but somebody else on the president's staff. Tim Kraft. Right, Tim Kraft. Uh, I think that that mechanism is a good thing. I would have limited it to far more important offenses. I think it sort of tends to trivialize it. I don't mean to uh, belittle the drug problem, but I don't really feel uh, that we need special prosecutors to deal with that sort of thing. I think to turn all such cases over to a special prosecutor, in effect, relieves of responsibility the administration itself. I mean, if, if we feel that uh, the Ham Jordans and Tim Kraft uh, aren't people who ought to be in the White House or abusing their positions in the White House, uh, 
the people to hold responsible are the administration and to hold them politically responsible. And I think to slough it all off on uh, a special prosecutor who is supposed to be above reproach is really to weaken responsibility rather than increase it. So I would reserve it for the, for the big ones, the teapot domes, the <laughs> water gates. I would make it applicable to uh, senators and congressmen, but I'm not sure they can ever be persuaded to do that. <laughs> well, as I look at my watch, it's fast approaching 1 o'clock, and I think we need to keep faith with you and the people who are here on their lunch hours and the like. Let me uh, simply uh, urge you to return for our next uh, open forum, which will be Thursday, October 16th at the same hour, and Ellen Goodman of the Washington Globe will be our, our guest. And Mr. Cox, you're welcome to come back here and poach anytime. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.